Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. We all know that the primary reason companies go into business is to produce a profit for owners and shareholders. Some would even argue that any money spent on the betterment of workers, communities, or society as a whole is a squandering of resources that needlessly harms the organization's bottom line. But as you're about to hear, over the past two centuries, there have been several leaders who launched new companies with the clear intention of breaking convention and purposely contributing to the well-being of their employees, customers, communities, and the natural environment. And they did this because they believed their firms would be better off for it. You likely know many of these companies. They include Hershey's Chocolates, Lever Brothers Soaps, Johnson & Johnson Health Products, Levi Strauss Blue Jeans, Southwest Airlines, and Herman Miller Furniture. As you probably surmise, many of the firms went on to endure and thrive, but certainly not all did. And almost every one of them had serious detractors, including from their investors and curiously from the CEOs who succeeded the founders following their death or retirement. My guest today is James O'Toole, and he's going to discuss his new book, The Enlightened Capitalist, Cautionary Tales of Business Pioneers Who Tried to Do Well by Being Good. It's an impressively comprehensive dive into what happened to the companies that sought to balance commerce with socially responsible values. I'm especially excited that he's here with us today because I think there are very few other people who could knowledgeably answer the big questions I'm about to ask him. Good or bad, what can we learn from these companies? Why do so many leaders instinctively reject socially responsible business models? Does caring about workers pay off in the end? And what approach would companies be wisest to adopt in the future? I mentioned that few people on the planet have his depth of understanding on these kinds of questions, and it's because he devoted his entire life to researching them. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business, the author of 19 management books, not to mention the founding director of the Neely Center for Ethical Leadership and Decision Making at USC. It is an honor for me to be speaking to you, James O'Toole. Welcome to the podcast. Mark, thank you very much for showing interest in my book. Well, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed your book, and I'm really anxious to get in and dig into this. And honestly, this might seem like the standard fair opening question for you, Jim, but it's so well-researched and so thoughtful in its detail. I have to ask you, I mean, I don't know how long it took you to write this book. Uh, Ten years. (laughs) Ten years. Yeah, that's what my sense was. It really felt that this was deeply researched. So because you devoted so much time to it, why this book? Well, it grew out of my teaching. You know, I spent years in business school teaching MBA students. And what I learned along the way was that the students responded better to positive examples than negative ones. So I tried to develop cases around companies with truly admirable leaders. And I found that that was more inspiring for the students than teaching them about General Motors, you know, about how not to run a company. And so after a while, I realized that I was fairly familiar with as many as 50 leaders who had really led quite virtuous lives and quite virtuous careers. And so I, I decided that I wanted to write a book about those people. So I got to ask a question because I think ordinarily, particularly when I think about an MBA program, that the sort of the traditional focus is on the failures, you know, the cautionary tales of here's how this railroad didn't endure because they didn't see the future or that kind of focus. So you're telling me that you sort of rearranged your focus for your teaching because students responded the positive approach to leadership rather than here's what you want to avoid? Yeah, I think when people are students, they aren't leaders yet. And they have a hard time imagining what leaders actually do. And so most of my teaching was around identifying what successful, effective, and ethical leaders do in terms of how they interact with their followers and how they lead their lives and their careers. And so, as you see in the book, I spent a lot of time you know, describing the actions that these various leaders engaged in and that they took the practical things that that they did. And then I think that way the students were able to see, yes, I understand, you know, given those circumstances, why these people did what they did and why they got the results that followed or flowed from their actions. 
I just love the idea that you figured out that students respond to positivity greater than they did, you know, the focus on don't do this. I think that's a very cool takeaway right out of the gate here. In your book, The Enlightened Capitalist, you document what I think is an exhaustive list of business leaders who really sought to do good while at the same time ensuring that their organizations thrive financially. So they wanted to do good and make a lot of money. And they intentionally sought to benefit their employees, customers, and even the broader community, not just shareholders. And you write that people like these are your heroes. So I thought I would ask, why are they your heroes? Well, I think there are several reasons, but if I was going to put my finger on just one, it is that they all displayed the trait of moral courage. What I mean by moral courage is that they were willing to take actions that were risky in terms of things that they were swimming upstream, they were not sort of playing by the rules everybody else was playing by. They sought to actually make their jobs even more complicated and difficult than they already were by taking on the responsibilities for all all those various constituencies that you just mentioned. And they also all came into a lot of criticism for what they did. They were challenged by their shareholders and sometimes by their own managers, certainly by other business people, that they persisted in doing good and doing the right things you know, displayed a tremendous amount of of what a a virtue ethicist would call moral courage. Well, I think one of the things you're pointing out here is something that I know to be true, which is that in order to lead this way, you really have to make a greater investment beyond just focusing on the business. As you're focusing on other constituencies, that takes time and energy. And so the moral courage you're defining here is really saying that they were willing to do that. Is that right? Or is there more to it? I think that most business people measure their success by how effective they are. And I think what these enlightened capitalists did is they added another measure of success. In addition to being effective, which they all were trying to run profitable businesses, they also had a measure of ethical measure to what they were doing that made their jobs a lot more difficult because while they were trying to be effective, they would always attempt to be effective in a way that was ethical, that they would not cut corners or harm any of their various constituents in the process of trying to run a profitably successful company. What was the source of this moral core? It came from different places. I think that's one of the interesting things about the book. Some of the people were religious. They're really inspired by the golden rule. And in several cases, people actually cite that. Mm-hmm. Several of the light leaders, many of them were products of the Enlightenment. And so these are humanistic values. Trying to find out what someone's real motivation is, is a very difficult thing to do. And I, I struggled with that all along because sometimes these people would write a lot about what they did, but they never told us why. They didn't go to that really the deep level of talking about, you know, I'm doing this because of what I learned from my parents, you know, about the golden rule, or it's because I was influenced by this philosopher or another philosopher. You know, very seldom did they go that far. So I had to sort of make an educated guess based upon what I knew about their lives. But I would say at least in half of the cases, it was probably their religious upbringing more than anything else that influenced their decisions. And in some cases, they were motivated by what they felt was there was a direct competition between Marxism and capitalism. And these leaders believed that it was possible to create a just alternative, a fair alternative to Marxism, that they believed that capitalism could be tamed in such a way that it was good for everybody, not just for the capitalists. And so they tried to use their businesses as a um, almost a laboratory, an experiment to demonstrate to other business leaders that it was really possible to create companies that were good for people as well as good for profits. And in that way, there would be less reason to even consider the Marxist alternative. So ranging from there to religion and sort of everywhere else in between, lots of different motivations. So what they were really trying to do is to live within the capitalistic approach, but to do it in a way where 
all constituencies were winning. You kind of look at the parallel to today and the pressures. There's all sorts of research that suggests that millennials, many of them are you know, not as strongly in favor of capitalism today because it's creating a have and have not sort of society. Mm -hmm. So this is interesting that even 100 years ago or even 200 years ago, that some of these companies were approaching it and saying, hey, we need to make some changes here to make sure that this is the, the way we continue to do business, but do it in a way that's equitable. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And almost all of the enlightened capitalists at one time or another wrote that they were trying to develop a different kind of capitalism, you know, one that was as concerned with the values of equality and liberty that extended to everyone in society and so that all could benefit from the wealth that was created by private organizations. Well, two of the fundamental beliefs that as far as, you know, reading through all these luminary leaders, these enlightened capitalists, what they all share to me is that it's an ethical business practice that creates loyal customers. They treat their employees well intentionally, and that inherently fosters a committed and productive workforce. So you don't have to look too far today to see that not all leaders or organizations subscribe to this or anything close to this. So based on all you've learned and know, are these true? I mean, should this be the model for companies? You know, will more companies adopt this going forward? That I don't know whether they will going forward. I think more and more business leaders are paying lip service to that. And I think that many of them believe it, but they find it, for one reason or another, hard to practice. And I think that's what sort of separated the enlightened capitalists from the great majority of business people in that they really practiced what they preached and they did it consistently throughout their entire careers. They didn't just do those things when it was convenient for them or when it was working and satisfying investors and the like. You know, they really stuck to it. They stuck to those principles. And I think the reason behind that is that every one of these people in one form or another, most of them quite explicitly, stated that their highest ethical principle was respect for people. And, you know, that is a universal moral principle. It's one that isn't just found in, in Christianity or Judaism, but it's found in every major religion. And what that meant to the enlightened capitalists was that the business leader had a responsibility for the development of their people. They saw their businesses as engines for human development. And almost all of them were very interested in training and educating their workers and allowing their workers to fulfill their potential. And I think that that aspect of it is what is missing in a lot of businesses. I think a lot of executives today, you know, don't think about the fact that they're underutilizing the potential of their workforce. And as a matter of fact, there's been a real cutback in terms of career development and all in major corporations. But these enlightened capitalists really saw that they had a responsibility, a moral responsibility to allow their people to achieve their full potential and to contribute that to society and to benefit themselves from developing their own skills and their own abilities. Well, the absence of development and this kind of commitment to growing people is clearly a problem today, or a problem in the sense that it doesn't align to what we just talked about with these enlightened capitalists and their view of it. But you said that Many companies are giving lip service to this. So if you come from a point of view as a CEO that people are just transactional, that we will bring you in to do a job, and if we don't need you any longer, then we'll find somebody else who can come in and do the next job, then why give it lip service? Why pay it any attention at all? Well, I think that business leaders like to see themselves in the best light, as we all do. We all want to think of ourselves as moral individuals and people who are doing the right thing. And you know, and you see the letters that CEOs write in their annual reports to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. They are full of the- People are our greatest assets. People are our greatest asset in our commitment to society and all the rest of it, you know, and they all say that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it may be in one level or another, they may believe it, but certainly if you ask the people who work for them or sometimes their customers about that, I think you would get a quite different story in many cases. Does not duplicity backfire on them inevitably, though? In other words, if you're out there saying we're something and you don't behave that way, doesn't that ultimately alienate people or create distrust? Well, there's, I think there's such a turnover among CEOs of 
publicly traded corporations that they feel that those things won't catch up with them. Yeah. Uh, they have a very short half-life now mm-hmm. for the tenure of a, an executive of Fortune 500 company. The enlightened leader that I loved and really loved reading about was James Cash Penny, the founder of the J.C. Penny retail chain in America, starting in the late 1800s. I didn't realize J.C. Penny went back that far. He gave away financial partnerships. So he's giving away equity in his company to attract the best managers and keep them motivated. And he believed in sharing the wealth of the company with all employees. He's giving income and wealth distribution based on the success of the company 100 plus years ago. And he sought to consistently, as you said, improve what he called the human factor, which I found really interesting. So should James Cash Penny be considered a model for leaders and managers today? And you mentioned the golden rule. He literally, his company before it was called J.C. Penny was called the golden rule company. Is this a thing of the future, the past? I mean, can we reconcile his values with how we operate businesses today? He certainly was a pioneer. When he wrote the Penny Principles, which I think he wrote them in about 1917, they anticipated all of these codes and credos that companies have been writing recently ever since, perhaps when Johnson & Johnson's famous credo made them very, very famous and well known. But Penny was the first to do that. And he was really one of, he probably was the first to, he created thousands of partners. Everybody who worked there felt that they had an ownership stake in the company. And as long as that was in place, the J.C. Penney Company was a great success. It started to get diluted when he was an old, he lived till he was way into his 90s. And when he was still on his board, the shares were finding their way into markets and they were being publicly traded. And more and more of the stock found its way in the hands of investors. And then the partnership whole structure fell apart. And almost at the same time, that's when JCPenney started to get into competitive troubles and which have continued to this day, how they managed to hang on, you know, after having declared bankruptcy so many times, God knows, but they're still there. But there's nothing of the old company remains and things got worse for the company financially, the further that they got away from Penny's principles and Penny's partnership plan. I do think the downfall of the company was closely linked to moving away from the things that he believed in he said. So I really like the penny model, but it has not been duplicated very often. I mean, it exists in things like consulting companies and accounting firms, that kind of a partnership model. But it really doesn't exist anywhere that I know of in a a commercial organization, you know, a manufacturer or a retailer such as Penny. So it wasn't copied. And that was one of the things that broke the heart of so many of these enlightened capitalists, that they did stuff that really worked, but nobody copied them. And that complaint, or they rude that fact, as they got older, almost all of them said, you know, I think that what we've demonstrated, that this works, and I I don't understand why my competitors and other businesses aren't doing what we're doing, because we've shown that it works. Well, forget the competitors, because you really just bridged me right into the question that I want to ask next, which really boils down to. So let me set the stage here, because I've read the book and want to make sure that my audience knows that his wasn't the only company where the founder lived this way and managed this company successfully and very successfully. So where people were happy, people were thriving, customers were thriving, their communities were thriving, the stock or the the income from the company, the profitability was, let's just say, very, very strong. So they were knocking all the pins down. And yet as soon as they died or sold their business, their successors, the very person that obviously had to have seen the success that the founder had, intentionally obliterated all the practices that made their firm successful in the first place. And this was over and over through your book. You see the new CEO come in and destroy the founder's legacy. So give me an example or maybe more than one of this and tell us why you believe they're so quick and willing to move away from what had been the cornerstones of their company's success. Well, I just made reference to Johnson & Johnson, and I think that that one is one of the clearest examples that we have of that, and it's one that is fairly recent and one that sort of occurred in plain sight. After the Tylenol crisis, almost every- In 1982, right? Right at that time, yeah. Almost every business school in America were teaching the Johnson & Johnson case that had to do with how General Robert Wood Johnson's famous credo, which is his list of all the responsibilities to all of his various constituents, how that had inspired one of his successors, James Burke, 
to behave responsibly in the face of the Tylenol crisis. And at that point, Johnson & Johnson was number one on every list of the most admired American companies. Every business school was teaching about the credo, constant references to this. 60 Minutes did a segment on it, a couple segments on it, positive things about how this credo had led to Johnson & Johnson to be able to survive this terrible crisis and how it allowed them to create this marvelous organization that was good for shareholders, it was good for employees, it was good for customers, it was good for the communities. It was a marvelous success story. Jim Burke retired and one of the first things the successor did was to move away from what was called the Credo Challenge, which was the way the activity inside the organization by which the Credo was kept alive and in which managers were able to see and to apply its principles to the challenges that they faced in their own work. And the reason that was given for going away from the Credo-centered business was because there were training costs involved and taking a time out, which is basically one day a year of executive and managerial and employee time to work on this sort of credo exercise. And he said, well, that's just was a waste of corporate funds. I don't believe that that was the reason why uh, it was eliminated. The reason why was it was the ego of Jim Burke's successor. That is that Jim Burke was associated with the credo. It was his idea. And this guy found himself in the shadow of a great man. And it bothered him because people were commenting inside the organization, outside the organization, that you know he wasn't nearly as good as Burke. Burke was such a great leader and people weren't talking about him in that way. So he had to make his own mark. And he started doing things differently. And unfortunately, the things that he did differently led to a whole series of ethical and legal violations that persists to this day in Johnson & Johnson, and Johnson & Johnson has never been able to regain that reputation that it had. And I talked to a top executive there about the successor, and he said that the successor just was desperate to do anything that was different from what his predecessor did so that he could get out from under his shadow. And I think that that is a terrible thing, but executive ego does get in the way quite often of doing the right things, and probably there was never a clearer case than at Johnson & Johnson. So fantastic example. I want to dig into this, but I have to ask you a question and I have a sense you've probably given this some thought. I'm the CEO who follows him. I come in, I'm looking and I'm saying, this is one remarkable person and I've got to follow him. So I've got to make my own mark. And by doing that, I inherently destroy his reputation. So underlying that is I'm going to sort of cripple the legacy here in order to make myself feel better about myself, which is all ego. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you were to coach CEOs or senior leaders or this entire audience on how to steer clear of that. So in other words, if he had come in with, I'm my own person, I admire the legacy of this organization. I'm going to honor the behaviors and practices that have helped this organization succeed. And that does not diminish me. How does somebody get there? Well, when we started this discussion, I started talking about you know, the difference between positive and negative examples. And then, of course, I just gave you a negative example with Johnson & Johnson. But let me give you a positive one to balance it. Because it's one that's going on right today. And it, it was actually became news in some ways in the last two weeks. Herb Kelleher was one of the founders of Southwest Airlines. And Kelleher was a leader in the mold of Jim Burke, really truly great executive, did marvelous things for his employees, his customers, his shareholders, everybody. I mean, it was just very hard to find fault with anything that Kelleher did. When he stepped aside, he handed over the leadership of the company to Gary Kelly. Now, Gary Kelly retained all of Herb Kelleher's practices. He built upon them. And today, almost everyone would say that Gary Kelly is the greatest executive in the airline industry, and he is on the top of everybody's list of great CEOs. So, you know, it's quite possible for a person, if you can set your ego aside just a little bit, you can see how in preserving what is good in the company and building upon it, you can also create a reputation that is great as the founders. And that's what Gary Kelly really has demonstrated. And it's really quite remarkable that the spirit of Herb Kelleher still lives in Southwest, 
but every single employee and every single customer of Southwest all has equal respect for Gary Kelly. How would you describe Gary Kelly's leadership ego? Well, I think he had enough self-confidence that Mm -hmm. he didn't need to break with Kelleher. He didn't need to, in some way, muddy the water of his legacy. And I think having the most successful leaders that I know have that trait of self-confidence. And I think that if people lack self-confidence as a leader, that's how they get into trouble. I won't mention any politicians today who behave in a bullying way, for example, mainly because they lack self-confidence. Right? And the lack of self-confidence usually manifests itself in doing things like barking orders to people and acting tough and making bold decisions that really run counter to the advice of other people in the organization. I do feel that the biggest handicap to effective leadership really is ego, and it's ego that stems almost always from a lack of self-confidence. And it's a sad thing. And I guess I'm not a coach. I don't know how you correct that. But I'm sure that uh, most coaches find that's probably the biggest challenge that they face, which is trying to build the confidence of the leader in a way that they use their power in a way that is effective, but not in a way that is merely just a display of power. That's a fantastic insight. So I'm glad we explored that. And since you brought up Southwest Airlines and Herb Kelleher, I do have to ask a couple of questions there too. I want to come back in a moment to Johnson and Johnson though. So I rarely fly all over the board here, but one of the things that Herb Kelleher is known for is that he literally ranked them and said, employees come first, customers come second, shareholders third. So That paradigm is rarely embraced in business today. He saw his employees as being a family, which is an idea that many people reject. And he encouraged them to look after one another, which I find absolutely fantastic, too, because it implies that we not just we're a part of a family, but we're here to support one another, not undermine each other, not compete with each other, which is another philosophical difference that I just don't see in that many organizations. And he took somebody who was really close to him and made her the keeper of the culture. So much like Johnson & Johnson, where we're going to come back to in their credo activity, they wanted to make sure that they replenished, that they rejuvenated, that they sustained actively the cultural values of the company because they believe that's what made them differentiated. And my question is, what's Herb Kelleher's legacy going to be? Well, right now, it is really secure. And, you know, Southwest continues to be a truly profitable company, one that is probably number one in terms of customer service in the entire airline industry, all aspects of it, you know, right down to how easy it is to make a reservation and how easy it is to change a reservation and that, you know, the bags are free and all all that stuff, which is really quite remarkable. But you are right that he made a really concerted effort to embed the culture in the organization so that it was not dependent upon him. And everybody he chose to be his successors and the managers around him were all people who were deeply committed to the beliefs of the organization that made the organization great. And they were committed to continuing it and they were committing it to even making it stronger by embedding it in the various practices and policies of the organization so that when they retire, those practices will continue on after them. And very few executives, unfortunately most of the enlightened capitalists, did not do a good job embedding their principles, their values into the culture in such a way that would last, you know, after they were gone. And that was probably one of the biggest failures of almost all of the enlightened capitalists is that they did not know how to really manage the culture in such a way that their values and their principles really became an inseparable part of everything that the company did so that it wasn't dependent upon them if they left. So that was Kelleher's brilliance then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People around him all bought into that, you know, and he was very careful in terms of his selection of people. So he made sure that that they shared his values. That was the most important thing, you know, and he felt that you could learn to do anything. As a matter of fact, the woman you mentioned, then became the vice chairman of the company, had started off as his legal secretary. And he brought her in and she ended up being a top executive, the highest ranking woman executive in the airline industry. And he said, you know, what he felt about her is that she could learn about airlines, you know, she could learn about business. 
but she wasn't going to learn to have the right values. And that's why he recruited her for that. Well, I just happened to see a quote, and I can't remember what his first name is. His last name is Crandall. He's the former CEO of American Airlines. And he, for all intents and purposes, said that this was a guy who truly valued people, who really did what he said. So there was massive integrity in his execution. And the final sentence was, we need more leaders like this guy. And this was just a few days ago. And so I think about that and I think, well, then how is it that United Airlines and which, by the way, I'm just going to call out, you know, I can't fly that airline anymore because they've made so many decisions to shrink the cabin space. The last time I was on a United Airlines flight, I had to cantilever my laptop. I was sitting on the aisle seat. I had to cantilever it out into the aisle in order to work it because the pitch was so significant that. I couldn't open it up all the way. And these choices that these companies make to sort of nickel and dime and really get the greatest profitability is still doing some harm. And this is a company that, you know, Southwest, they're not making those same choices. They're still adequate space. They're not charging you for the extra bag. They're very generous with their snacks. There's a giving aspect to them that's very differentiated. So if Crandall recognizes the genius in Herb Kelleher, why aren't more airlines or any more industries adopting his practices. Well, Crandall didn't do it himself. And Crandall was absolutely hated by his employees. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, this is one of a classic example of somebody saying something and doing just the opposite. You know, Crandall was really one of the sort of meanest bosses, wow. just really rough on the staff, people around him, treated the employees as dirt. And actually, the company did not do very well under his leadership, do a lot better now than they did. But Crandall's one of those people who did not practice what he preached in the least. And he certainly is not even mentioned in my book. But United is another example. I mean, United actually, at one point, was known as a very, very good place to work. It was a good place to be a customer. And it was really through short-sighted leadership that they lost their competitive edge. And I have quite a bit of discussion in the book about how United, when they became an employee-owned firm, a largely employee-owned firm, how they blew the opportunity to use that as a way to remake their culture and to have the pilots and the mechanics who were the major shareholders in the company come to see themselves as owners and to have an ownership stake in the company and therefore a greater interest in making the company a success. And again, it's an ego question. Because of the ego of the executives at United, they wouldn't listen to the employees. They did not allow them to participate in management, even though they were owners. They didn't treat them as shareholders. And so they thought that they would actually listen to the employees, listen to their ideas and try to make improvements based upon getting the information from the front line was such a threat to people who wanted to issue orders from the top down that United went through a series of CEOs who did terrible things and ruined a once great airline. I agree with you. Well, very recently, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink and even Vanguard Investments Vice Chair Bill McNabb have publicly and independently started to urge top business leaders to stop focusing on short-term profits, which I think, unfortunately, is a big driver for a lot of the brutal management that you were just describing. And they're saying... You need to start focusing on employee well-being authentically and helping to remedy some of society's biggest ills, which is outside of the purview of many organizations today. And so these organizations, they're managing an extraordinary amount of stock investments around the world. So they've got some clout. And what are they seeing that so many others don't? Well, again, neither Fink nor McNabb have changed their investment policies. You know, they're saying these things, but let's start seeing when some real changes in what they're doing. Now, they only started saying this within the last year, so there may be changes in the works at both of their organizations. But there are other sources where investors, particularly sovereign funds, pension funds, CalPERS, California State Pension Fund, the Norwegian Sovereign Fund, they all now are in the Ford Foundation's investments. They are now all moving away from short-term investments, and they're all now moving towards trying to invest in companies 
that have more enlightened governance practices, more enlightened hiring practices, more enlightened environmental practices. So we can see with those very large institutional investors some movement in that direction, and, and that actually gives one some hope if mm-hmm. indeed others like Vanguard and BlackRock now really follow suit and really do this, I think it would have a very positive effect on organizations because most of the, as you point out, uh, I think most of the unethical things that happen in organizations are the result of that short-term orientation and trying to maximize this quarter's profits. And that comes from the investment community. The investment community says, no, you know, we want you to do the right things in the long term. And because we know the profits will come in the long term or they become more patient in investors, it would have an enormous impact upon the behavior of corporate executives. I think that's one of the most positive things that we can look forward to and just keep our fingers crossed that that's really the direction things are going. Well, I like that there's pressure against these companies to make that change. And you're right. My fingers are crossed because a lot of people are clamoring for this. So I promised that I didn't want to let the Johnson & Johnson story go. And I want to call out one thing that you mentioned and just make sure that my listeners understand it. And then I'm going to ask you a question. But what Johnson & Johnson did going back to Jim Burks was to have this credo. These are values that literally drove the company. So they're not platitudes on the wall. This was what really, truly drove the company. And the thing that I found so stunning, so remarkable, and such an example of something that I think companies should be adopting is this one day a year meeting that you were describing where people got together in teams and started to kick holes in it. Are we living these values? Do they still hold up? Is this what we are? Is this who we want to be? Is it aspirational? You know, so they're basically making sure that every employee in the company has this moment in time where they're not focusing on their job. They're focusing on who are we as a culture? I just found that really remarkable. And why it's so remarkable is because after Jim Burke's successor left, then you have this Tylenol situation where somebody went into grocery stores and started putting poison into Tylenol capsules. And I'm going to let you tell the rest of the story. Well, the Tylenol thing actually occurred while Burke was in place, and it is how Burke handled it because of the discussions that have been going on for years under his leadership about the credo that allowed them to respond positively to, you know, to that terrible, uh, it wasn't an accident, the psychopath put poison in the pills and put them on the shelves. It had nothing to do with Johnson & Johnson, but Johnson & Johnson took full responsibility and acted very quickly, spent hundreds of millions of dollars, basically the interest to save lives. They didn't have to, they could have stonewalled, they could have done a lot of other things, but they insisted on opening up the whole decision-making process so that everybody could understand what they were doing, why they were doing, what actions they were taking. It was complete transparency, full disclosure of everything, truly remarkable occurrence. And what happened, though, afterwards is that the successors did not keep that up, and they have all kinds of regulatory and compliance problems, lawsuits, products that have backfired and harmed people. There was just another one, Johnson & Johnson just paid another big fine last week, I noticed, in the paper. But none of this happened during Burke's time when the credo was first and foremost in everyone's mind in terms of their behavior up and down the line in the organization. But that credo, those values were the anchor of the decision to take all of the Tylenol off of all the shelves in every store everywhere right? And the cost to that organization, they were willing to accept it because not accepting it would compromise their values. Obviously, this was a hugely admired company for many years because of this. And then we have new leaders come in and they walk away from it. And now we're seeing the mess that they're creating. And it's sort of astonishing to me, honestly, that you and I can be having this conversation and it's this obvious. And yet it's not obvious to the people running these companies. You know, in the book, I have a chapter about Johnson & Johnson, probably one of the longest chapters in the book. When Burke initiated the Credo Challenge, he brought all of his top executives together off-site for two days. These were the top 20 people in the company, and they filmed the discussion that they had. And they actually used this film, Johnson & Johnson, as a training tool for many years. And I got a copy of it when I was teaching, and I used it in my classroom. What was remarkable is actually see how open the discussion was among the executives at Johnson & Johnson about the credo. There were executives who were saying, we don't practice what we preach. 
There are also executives who dare to say, I don't like the credo. I just want to maximize profits. I think we should just be in the business of making money and ignore all this stuff about taking care of the doctors and the nurses and everybody else who are our customers. He says, we are a profit-making company. That's why we're here. And these guys, they were all guys at that time. This was in the 1950s, the early 60s, perhaps. And they argued like mad. And what Burke said afterwards, when he looked at the film, he said, that's exactly what we want. Mm -hmm. He said, if you don't have that kind of free exchange of opinion about these things, you don't have that kind of a real debate up and down the organization, that the cradle will not be a part of the lifeblood of the company. And he liked the fact that there was that kind of open discussion. And in many companies today, I think that you couldn't have at the top management such a free-flowing discussion and people quite diametrically opposing views and even people looking at the credo, which was written by their beloved General Robert Wood Johnson, the son of one of the founders, it was written by him. But there were people in the organization saying, I think that the general was wrong. No, we should tear down that credo. They decided to keep it. And a lot of those people in the room, they changed their minds later on. Mm. And that was what is truly remarkable. I didn't know that. That's excellent. Well, one of the things that in reading your book that I was really looking forward to asking you, because it's perplexing to me. So you mentioned well-known industrialists like Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller. And you described them as being absolutely ruthless businessmen who exploited their workers on the road to building huge fortunes. And they obviously had great tax laws at the time, so they were effectively robber barons in some respects. But nevertheless, they went about making their money on the backs of their people. But then these people then went on to burnish their images in pretty successfully by giving most of their money away. And so even today, you look at Amazon's Jeff Bezos and his reputation, despite the fact that Amazon is a hugely successful company, is that he operates very much like this and has since the company was founded. So why do so many business leaders feel the need to exploit and abuse their employees to succeed? And then what explains the change of heart that they have when they're rich to give it all away? Well, you said that they got their fortunes on the backs of their employees, but it wasn't just on their backs. I mean, people like Rockefeller and Carnegie and Ford, they did things that were bad for their customers. They did things that were bad for their suppliers. They did things that were bad for their competitors. I mean, really unfair things. So they really did. It was sort of like the opposite of the credo, which laid out the responsibilities that Johnson Johnson had to each of the various constituencies. It was almost like they had the opposite that go through all the various constituencies of the organization and Ford and Carnegie and Rockefeller didn't pay much attention to any of them. And it was only until late in their lives that they had not necessarily a change of heart, but I think that they felt a need to burnish their images. And in some cases, as Rockefeller pointed out directly, to make atonement for a life not well led. And so, you know, there's a long history of this. I documented it in the early chapters of the book mm -hmm. of people who lead quite unethical careers, how many of them at the very end try to burnish their reputations by establishing a foundation yeah. or you know, giving the money away for doing good. And what is different with the enlightened capitalists, the enlightened capitalists say, no, the purpose isn't to wait till the very end and then do good after you've left the company, but it is to be doing good from day one and to be not to have to wait until the very end to burnish your reputation because you will have earned one throughout your entire life. And I think that that is one of the really major differences mm -hmm. between people like Ford and Carnegie and Rockefeller and my enlightened capitalists. You know, when I first started talking about writing this book, I said, yeah, I'm going to write about you know, virtuous business people. And people said, oh, you mean people like Carnegie and Rockefeller, you know, who gave away all their money. Right. And that was the first thing that people said. And I said, no, it's not like them at all. Really, it's quite the opposite of the Carnegie's, Rockefeller's and Ford's. Interesting. Some of the enlightened capitalists went so far as to build housing for their workers. Chocolate magnet Milton Hershey, Hershey bars, even built a town in Pennsylvania that still stands today. So obviously, if you were advising CEOs on how to create a more sustainably productive company, I doubt you'd be recommending that they build towns or housing. But what would you recommend? Like, in other words, what are the big movers? Like, what are the things that leaders and organizations can do today, separate from building housing, that will support their people, support their customers, and build a brand that sort of matches over to the moral courage you were describing at the very beginning? Well, 
to me, if I were going to work for a large corporation, you know, what I would look for based upon, you know, I'm 70, maybe 74 years old. I, I've been looking at these companies for a long time. Based upon what I've seen, what I know about companies over all those years, I would look for a company in which there were clear career paths, that is in which I could, would be trained, it would be promotion from within, opportunities for me to grow, opportunities for me to learn, and also a company in which I would be involved in decision-making around my tasks, and also one in which I would own stock in the company, significant stock ownership in the company. And that's what I would look for. And I think that's what a company would do. I think that the day of making housing for people is all part of a paternalistic past or what is seen as paternalism. But yet, you know, there's one thing about the housing thing that you do mention, which is kind of coming around in a quite different way, is that in places like Seattle and San Francisco, where a lot of these tech companies have come in, right. we do now have housing crises in both of these places. And employees cannot afford to live there, particularly lower level employees. And what you're starting to see in Seattle among some companies, and, and I think we've seen it's probably going to start to happen here in San Francisco as well, is that the companies are going to start to invest in affordable housing in the cities, not just necessarily for their own employees, but to make these cities livable, which San Francisco and Seattle are not, unfortunately, today for people who are not making six-figure incomes. And so there may be some opportunity there, but that's more helping the community than it is providing housing, particularly for your workers. But it is really trying to help make the communities around them livable places. Well, I actually read, I think it was Google that's suggesting at least that they're going to contribute money so that they can create housing for teachers because teachers on their incomes can't afford to live. And they want to make sure that their employees' children aren't going to inadequate schools. So that's giving back to the community in a way that supports their employees and ultimately the well-being of their organization. Yeah, and I think that's what I would call positive philanthropy. And that is not done to make the CEO look like a good guy. I mean, that is really part of what any company would do to make the environment around them a livable place because corporations have responsibilities to their host communities as much as they have responsibility to their employees and then their customers. And I think that companies today who manifest that responsibility, for example, by trying to not harm the environment where they have facilities, by trying to become carbon neutral, all of these things are things that companies can do today. And I think in the realm of the environment, more and more companies are moving in that direction. And I think that's another very positive sign. Perhaps one of the most positive signs that we have is a growing awareness among corporate executives of the need to pay attention to environmental damage. Jim, we have a segment that we call the heartbeat round. We take a break from the deeper conversation and ask our guests a list of rapid fire questions that help us get an even greater insight into the person and who they are more personally. So I'm going to start with the questions and hope you'll answer each one in a heartbeat. Are you ready? Oh, yeah, I'll get my heart going. Okay. It's <laughs> All right. One book, not of the leadership genre, every manager should read. The Worldly Philosophers by Robert Heilbrenner. Quality you admire most in other people. Generosity. Modern day company and CEO that gets leadership right. Unilever's Paul Pullman. Modern day company whose practices make it hard to admire. Walmart. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. The Economist and the New York Times. The quality that derails most leadership careers. Ego, again, ego. <laughs> Your best career advice to people with many more years left in their work lives. Do what you love doing. The life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. Nothing ever comes easy. World leader of any era you most admire. Can't pick one, but I would pick those guys who are on Mount Rushmore. Oh, great. Okay. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Hey, I'm 74 years old. What I'm working on right now is trying to get my discipline back enough so that I can write another book. But, you know, it's a lot harder when you get older. Well, I'll tell you, I wish we had time. I would love to know how you made yourself so prolific. Just incredible, the number of books you've written. Which is a better performance motivator, fear or love? That's the easiest question you've asked all day. Love, love. <laughs> Great. Of all your enlightened capitalists, which one do you hold in the highest regard? It's like asking a mother with <laughs> 10 children, which one of her children she loves the most. I love them all. Okay. One example of how you vote with your wallet. I don't shop at Walmart. Quote that best captures your personal philosophy. That is one question that is too hard to answer. 
All right. Thank you, Jim. These are some wonderful answers to these questions. Very enlightening. And if I could ring the bell, uh, I would ring them on just about every one of your answers. So thank you very much. Ordinarily, Jim, I clear it out the way and ask my guests to make one final point and perhaps address something that we didn't get to cover in the conversation. But I want to do something a little bit differently with you. I'd like to have you give us your final opinion on where you think things are headed. Now, at the end of your book, you sort of left that open, like we can't predict where people are going to go. But I, I do wonder, and it was interesting to me also that in the book, in the, you know, hundred years ago, people were asking, is this the tipping point? Have we reached a point where we're going to have more enlightened capitalism? And so I'm wondering, what do you think the future of leadership is? What do you think it needs to be? What's your best prediction? We thought we've reached the tipping point two or three times, even in my own life. And they thought that in the 1950s, in the 1940s here, many executives felt that way at the time. I don't know what the tipping point actually is. The last thing that I would say is what gives me the greatest hope is the rise of what are called benefit corporations and B Corps. B Corps are certified companies that are very difficult to get a B certification because you have to show that you are doing good things for all of your stakeholders, good things for the environment, that you are ethical, that you're basically a company that is making positive contributions overall to society. And more and more companies, unfortunately, they're almost all small and none of them are publicly traded are going for B certification. So the small businesses in America, a lot of small businesses are really moving in the right direction. The benefit corporations is a legal status that has grown in response to the experience that I've reported throughout this whole book, that is that publicly traded companies have had a hard time managing for the long term and had a long time sustaining ethical practices, have suffered from pressures from the investing community to maximize short-term profits and to cut corners. But if one gets a benefit corporation status, the managers of a company can take actions that are in the long-term interest of the company, even if they do reduce short-term profits. Mm -hmm. And so that basically it takes the pressure, the constant pressure of the quarterly need to report high profits, takes that pressure off of managers and allows them to manage more effectively and more ethically in the long term. And so I think that the B Corps and the benefit corporations, two very closely associated trends, give me the most hope of anything that I see occurring out there. Thank you. I'm so very glad I asked that question. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. This has just been a truly informative hour with you. And so thank you on behalf of all my listeners, and I wish you tremendous success with your new book, which comes out just in a couple of weeks, late February, right? Yes, sir. Well, thank you so very much, Jim. Thank you very much. Appreciate your calling. Bye. Take care. As we close things out, I want to mention that besides speaking, consulting, and of course, hosting this podcast, I write frequently about leadership and about the lead from the heart thesis. And all of these articles are free and you can find them on my website, markccrowley.com. As always, I hope you'll introduce us to your friends and colleagues. And I want to thank my Seattle-based team, web manager Randy Yant, and sound engineer and producer Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. Thank you so very much for listening. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. 